This episode of Food Psych is brought to you by Bobble Bar. Bobble Bar is a great New York-based jewelry and accessories company that makes it easy to experiment with fashion and style. They have really bold and fun statement pieces, as well as more understated styles like layering necklaces and stackable rings, and even a new line of fine jewelry. They also have a great special offer for our listeners right now, which is if you go to bobblebar.com, you can get 20% off using the promo code PSYCH. That's B-A-U-B-L-E-B-A-R.com and get 20% off when you use the promo code P-S-Y-C-H at checkout. Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, and body liberation. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, thanks for tuning in for episode 126 of Food Psych. Today I'm talking with Kyla Prinz, a fellow anti-diet activist and podcaster and previous Food Psych guest who's worked for many years in the field of marketing and has lots of great inside scoops to share about it. We talked about how to recognize and push back against diet culture marketing, how to keep your personal brand, quote unquote, from overtaking your personhood, how to navigate all the inevitable triggers we come across in this culture, how to market yourself ethically, and so much more. I can't wait to share it all with you in just a minute. It's a really, really good episode. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question. It's from a listener named Ryan who writes, I was so excited to find your podcast and even more excited about your question and answer portion. I often feel like a lot of the topics and questions I read and listen to about intuitive eating are related to restrictive eating, which has been a behavior of mine in the past. In the past year, I had a baby and experienced some pretty severe postpartum anxiety and depression. I turned to food to deal with this and ended up gaining a significant amount of weight. I'm dealing with the change of my body, not from giving birth, but because of the out-of-control eating I engaged in. The piece I don't understand is when a person is under-eating, we want to help them not be so restrictive, but I am at the other end of the spectrum. I don't see how to use the principles of intuitive eating to stop overeating without entering back into my restrictive behavior. I'm not afraid to eat a brownie or french fries. I'm afraid of eating them in an out-of-control fashion. Thank you for your insight. So thanks, Ryan, for that great question. And before I answer, just my usual disclaimer that these answers are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So, yeah, this is a great question, and it's one that I often get from people who think of themselves as overeaters rather than restrictors. But the thing is, pretty much everyone I've ever known who thinks of themselves as an overeater is at least mentally restricting their eating, if not restricting in other ways too, which we'll get to, but at least mentally restricting their eating, meaning they're telling themselves that they quote unquote shouldn't eat certain foods or certain amounts of foods or a certain amount of food in general and beating themselves up when they do. So those thoughts are not your fault, right? They're the product of diet culture. They've been instilled in you over many years of living in 
this culture, but they contribute to feeling out of control with food because they make you feel deprived and therefore you're more likely to eat with more anxiety, more fear, and more out of control feelings when you feel deprived because you, A, feel like the food might be taken away from you, right? Because you're telling yourself all these restrictive things in your head about the food. And so it feels like that last supper mentality. And B, you know, it causes just a lot of fear and anxiety to feel like you're doing something wrong. Right. The other thing is, in most cases, people who think of themselves as overeating are also physically restricting their eating to some extent, even if they don't think of it as a restriction. So they're responding to those diet mentality thoughts in their head by holding back from eating the types of foods they want or as much as they want of certain foods or foods in general to some extent. And it just doesn't seem overtly like what our culture considers restrictive eating, so they don't recognize it as such, but it is, in fact, restriction. And in the scientific research, this kind of subtly restrictive eating is often referred to as restrained eating, and it's been linked to a greater likelihood of eating in response to emotions. It's also separately been linked to a greater likelihood of engaging in severely restrictive behaviors too. And so the third piece of the puzzle here is for people who think of themselves as overeaters, especially emotional overeaters, past periods of restriction and deprivation are likely at the root of that. So research shows that people who've been restrictive eaters in the past are more likely to eat in response to emotions, whereas people who've never been restricted or restrained or deprived of food, even through non-intentional means like, you know, food insecurity in childhood or starvation or deprivation, you know, through poverty, those folks are more likely to turn to food in times of stress and emotionality, whereas people who've never been restricted or restrained are more likely to weather their emotional storms without turning to food for comfort. That's just not a thing that they tend to do. And in many cases, their appetites actually go down in response to emotions. The fourth piece of the puzzle here is that diet culture causes us to judge certain types of eating as overeating when actually they might just be normal responses to our physiological needs and conditions. So that's a super important piece, this idea that you might be judging your eating as overeating. And I'll explain more about that in a minute. So my first clue, Ryan, that all of the stuff I mentioned is likely what's going on for you is that you say restrictive eating has been a behavior of yours in the past. And when you've had periods of obviously restrictive eating, it's created a lasting impression in your brain like I just spoke about, and your brain really treats it as though it's experienced a famine. So it's more likely to be triggered by any hint of deprivation, any potential of starvation or famine going forward. And if you've been a restrictive eater in the past, and especially if you're still a restrained eater or subtly restrictive eater, right, mentally restricting, et cetera, you're also more likely to eat in response to emotions. So really the best solution for what you see as your emotional eating issue is actually to let go of the subtle levels of restrained eating that you're still doing and to keep reassuring your body that it's not going to go through another famine, that it's safe by consistently allowing yourself to eat what and when you want to eat until you're full, until you're satisfied, not until you tell yourself from the diet brain that you need to stop. 
And then circling back to what I said before about diet culture causing us to judge certain ways of eating as overeating when they're actually just normal physiological responses, I'm thinking that that could really be playing a role for you here too. Because pregnancy, breast milk production, the process of healing your body postpartum, right, that takes a huge amount of energy. All that stuff requires a lot of energy. So it's it's increasing your body's natural energy needs, which translates into an increase in appetite and food needs. And if you were experiencing these things but judging them through diet culture's lens, you probably thought they were bad, right? Because diet culture teaches us that those things are bad. You know, hunger's bad, appetite's bad, right? We should suppress those things. That's what diet culture tells us. And so if you thought that, then you started reflexively restraining or restricting your eating in response probably, either at a physical or mental level. And that would have just added to your biological hunger and exacerbated the feeling of deprivation leading to feelings of being out of control because now you weren't actually getting your needs met. You know, now the threat of starvation and famine was feeling very real to your body. The other piece of this is depression, anxiety, and medications to treat depression and anxiety as well can cause changes in appetite and weight. And in some cases, those are temporary conditions and your body will go back to its baseline in time once it adjusts. In other cases, your weight will end up staying at a higher place because that's just how your body responds to the medication or the mental health conditions. But in either case, it's diet culture that causes us to judge and fear weight gain, right? Like if we lived in a really weight neutral society where diet culture wasn't a thing, we'd be able to notice without judging, you know, like, oh, I seem to have gained weight. Okay. It would be a neutral thing, right? Maybe we'd be slightly annoyed at having to buy new clothes or whatever, but it wouldn't come with a horrible negativity and stigma that accompanies weight gain right now because we live in a weight stigmatizing society and we're all inundated with those messages from birth. So again, you know, because we live in the society that makes us have such negative reactions to weight gain, we're more likely to crack down, right? We're more likely to start restricting or restraining our eating instead of just letting our bodies work things out for themselves when we go through a period of weight gain or temporary appetite increase or whatever. So all of that is to say intuitive eating puts so much emphasis on restrictive eating because nearly everyone who lives in our culture lives in diet culture, right? And certainly everyone who's had a rocky relationship with food involving dieting Everyone engages in restrictive eating to some degree in this culture, right? And especially when you've dieted. So whether it's mental or physical restriction, and usually it's both, there's some level of restriction going on there for everyone. And so when you think of yourself as an overeater and you focus on using the principles of intuitive eating to stop overeating, I think that's actually possibly causing you more harm than good. So I wouldn't focus on that. I would say putting the emphasis on stopping overeating is still rooted in the diet mentality. And you want to work on ridding yourself of the diet mentality. So instead of focusing on overeating, focus on using the principles of intuitive eating to stop all the subtle ways and maybe the not so subtle ways. Maybe you're realizing that there are some not so subtle, somewhat more obvious ways that you're restricting your eating already and you're thinking about food in a restrictive way. So focus on that, you know, focus on rooting out those subtle and not so subtle restrictions and then trust that the more you're able to do that, the more your feelings of overeating and being out of control will subside and really trust that that, that will happen in time. So I hope that helps. And to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. 
And if you don't want to wait months and months to have your question answered, because we have a huge backlog of questions for the podcast right now, and the question I just answered from Ryan was actually from early July, you can come join my online course and get all your questions answered every month. My Intuitive Eating Fundamentals course gives you access to an exclusive monthly Q&A podcast where I answer questions from all our participants, and that includes you when you join. You'll also get all the back episodes of the exclusive Q&A podcast, plus 13 modules of audio lectures, transcripts, journal exercises, and meditations to help you implement all the principles of intuitive eating in your life in a way that finally sticks so that you can finally stop worrying about food and start prioritizing the things that really matter to you. The course is designed to help you recognize and reject all the sneaky, subtle forms of the diet mentality, like the mental restrictions and restrained eating that we were just talking about. You'll also learn how to accept the size and shape your body wants to be when you're practicing intuitive eating and let go of body shame and body judgment and so much more. If you believe in the values of body acceptance and you're ready to give up dieting like yesterday, but you're feeling stuck and you need some support to help you along the way, come join me and this wonderful community of participants in the course. You can learn more and sign up at christyharrison.com course. That's christyharrison.com course. We're brought to you today by M.M. Lafleur. If you want to look impeccable at work but have better things to do than sift through uninspiring racks of pantsuits, the solution is M.M. Lafleur. M.M. Lafleur is a women's workwear brand whose mission is to take the work out of dressing for work. The best way to experience M.M. Lafleur is through their bento box. All you have to do is take a quick online survey, and an M.M. stylist will work with you one-on-one to create a personalized box, including four to six wardrobe items and a few accessories that really fit your style. They added a great range of plus sizes as well as straight sizes earlier this year, and I know they're looking to expand more in the plus size category in the future, so I'm really happy to support them, and I'm grateful to have them supporting the podcast. When you get your bento box, you'll have four days to try everything on at home before deciding what to keep. You won't be charged anything up front, and you'll only pay for the items you keep, and shipping is even free both ways, so you're not just paying to try on clothes. They're also not a subscription service, so there's no commitment. To try a bento yourself, visit mmbento.com. That's M-M-B-E-N-T-O dot com. And now, without any further ado, let's go talk to Kyla Prinz. So, Kyla, welcome back to the show. It's been a couple years since we talked last for Food Psych. Yeah, which is crazy. It's hard to believe that it's been so long. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I know. I was just before we talked, I was like scrolling through my episodes to find what episode you're on. And it was episode 47, which feels like a lifetime ago. Yeah, something like that. (laughs) (laughs) So catch us up on what you've been up to since then, and especially this new podcast that you're launching soon, which is called Your Body, Your Brand. Yeah. So it has actually been a really crazy couple of years. I guess, you know, when we talked, I was still health coaching and I was really working one-on-one with people, writing pretty intensively about body image specifically, especially for people who are recovered from eating disorders or in the process of recovering, getting stuck in this place of like recovered enough where they're like, oh, I'm close enough to recovered that it doesn't really matter if I'm still counting calories or it doesn't really matter if I'm still paleo or it doesn't really matter if I'm, you know, trying to become a fitness model. I'm recovered. It's fine. The doctor says I'm great. Right. So that was kind of where my focus was. And I got kind of burned out, to be honest, on body image. I think 
as with anything that goes from being a important and powerful niche where the body image body positive community such as it is was really a place that people were coming for help to make change to grow to move past disorder and to reject really negative stereotypes that they had been placed upon them by society or by themselves to work on their mental and emotional health etc and now it's a buzzword so everybody's body positive and now weight watchers is body positive and you know all of that so i kind of just burned out because I was tired of, of scrolling through Instagram and looking at the same posts over and over and over again. There's only so many times you can take a picture of yourself in your bikini pinching your cellulite and talking about it before it becomes ridiculous. So I just, I burned out. I had to just take a break. So I shut down my podcast. I stopped blogging. I shuttered my health coaching business and I sat back and said, what, what matters right now? Because there are still people who are very clearly caught in disorder, whether it be the mental illness as diagnosed by the DSM-5 or whether it be this weird nebulous thing that's like society told me I should go to Orange Theory times today and I need to wear my Lululemons and it have to, they have to look a certain way, right? There's there's two different kinds of disorder, right? <laughs> there's the, the mental illness and the emotional illness, if you will. And I said, so my focus is not necessarily on personal culpability for this disorder, right? It's not just about like, oh, well, you need to learn how to stop counting calories. It's why are we counting calories in the first place? My focus shifted to the larger picture, to the cultural forces that are really starting to determine the way that we behave. Because I think there are a ton of incredible people, yourself included, who are working one-on-one with people who are dealing with disorder, right, who are making that huge change on the on the interpersonal, like, soul level, if you will, right, where you, you are literally touching somebody's soul and they are able to open up and move on and live a bigger, better life as a result. So I think where where my focus is and where... What I want to, what change I want to make in the world is like, okay, so you do the work with one of your clients, right? Mm -hmm. They spend an intensive couple of months with you where they are breaking down the boundaries. They're working on, you know, expanding their, their menu, right? They're not just focusing on whether it's their calories or their macros or their nutrition, whatever it is, right? They're working on changing their relationship with food in their body, which then goes on to change their relationship with their life in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you do that. You do all that work. And what happens? You have to go back out into the world. And you go back out into the world and you're still on, you know, fat burning man's paleo email list. And he sends you a email about his latest plan. And it's like, well, I don't need it, but I'm intrigued. Why? And you click and then his emails start coming faster and faster because you clicked because you were curious. And suddenly it's the night that the cart closes and he's got to get you in because he's got to make money. And so he's got some message about, you know, it's going to change your life. And he's like, well, maybe this time I'll do it differently. I don't really need it. I don't really have the 4795 or whatever, but, but, but this is my last chance. So I'm going to do it. And you get back, you get sucked back in to these negative relationships with food in your body by these like marketing tactics that then kind of affect your thinking because 
it's a familiar way of thinking. I don't know if that makes any sense. Oh, my God. It makes so much sense. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's that's an aspect of diet culture that we don't really get into the nitty gritty of enough Mm -mm. is is the marketing, like the mechanisms of the marketing and how that works. Because there's marketing like billboards and magazines and things that we're sort of familiar with as like an area of media literacy that we have to be conversant in. But these little things like email marketing, being on someone's email list and, and sort of the ways that diet culture shows up online are kind of new. And I think nobody's really talking about that enough. Exactly. So that you you hit on it exactly. So we have a fairly robust sense of media literacy. We've seen the the video of the model who gets photoshopped, right, from like 2011. That goes around the internet every so often. We know how photoshopping works. We know how magazines editors are trained to do whatever it is that they do when it comes to positioning people and putting the ads out there whatever. We know that right? We're not dumb. We, we've gotten to a point where like most people have a general sense of I'm being lied to, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. However, we don't have marketing literacy. And that is where my focus is now. Because why would you need marketing literacy? Unless you're becoming a marketer yourself, you don't need to know that there is an entire culture online right now learning how to Use your psychological triggers to get you to buy things that maybe you don't need and that might actually be damaging to you. What you also may not realize is that you yourself, listener out there in listener land, uh, may be acting like a marketer without even realizing it anymore. I always like to go back to this, and I don't know if this is something you can like share in the blog post, and I can try to find it for you and send it to you, but... There is a cartoon by The Oatmeal, who is very funny and very just, you know, a little bit irreverent. So, but this cartoon show, and it was from several years ago, where it shows like a stick figure person or whatever, taking a picture of their smoothie. And then they post it to Instagram with like 700 hashtags. (laughs) And their friend goes, what are you doing? And the person, you know, looks up and is like, marketing? (laughs) (laughs) because that's what we're all doing all day long. We are marketing ourselves, whether we are selling something or just creating a persona online. We are all marketing ourselves to one another. Right. It's so fascinating to think about that because I think people do that stuff innocently or stumble into it, right? As especially in this recovery space and in, you know, body positivity, body acceptance, body liberation, whatever flavor you're sort of identified with. People start to do that maybe from a, a very innocent place of just like this helps me, you know, and this is what I've seen other people do online, sharing these images under these hashtags so other people can find it. So I'm gonna do that too. And then it becomes this whole other thing. And you know, my business has evolved along with my podcast as well. And so I get the sort of transition that has to happen sometimes. It's like if you want to do this thing for a living or if you have the opportunity to do this thing for a living and the way that you can do that is by selling a product that's associated with what you're already doing for free, that in and of itself isn't bad, but it's it does require a certain level of marketing that none of us are trained in really. Right. So one of the interesting things that I, I see, so if you if you Dear listener, if you haven't had a chance to go check out internet marketing, which is a giant subculture on the internet, 
I don't recommend it because it's really easy to get sucked in because of all the promises of quick riches or building a business, getting your freedom number, living for, you know, on the road and li- your best life now, etc. Whatever. Right. So here's the thing. There was a book written several, many, many years ago called Influence by a guy named Robert Cialdini. He's now a professor of marketing. And he talks about the different ways in which you can use psychology to influence people as a salesperson specifically, but it, it has become kind of a marketing textbook. The thing is, he talks about in his book how to do it ethically. None of the internet marketers do. <laughs> so we've lost something along the way in the pursuit of making money. And I think it's really easy to get caught up in the idea that you can make money, gain capital by just, oh my God, I can just get a blog. I can just, <laughs> people will will start following me. I'll get affiliate sales, whatever. But what we don't realize is there's, there's two sides to ethics. There's one, ethics of how you influence your followers. And then there's the part that we definitely don't talk about and even that Cialdini did not talk about is how we influence ourselves. Mm. So I'll give you a an example. There is a a healthy living blogger about whom I came to care deeply because I saw that she was struggling and that she was working very hard to influence her audience to be body positive, to love themselves, to ditch fitspo, to she was also a big recipe blogger. So a lot of quote unquote healthy food. So protein everything or carb-free that or Uh, whatever. Yeah, diet versions of things. Yeah, so we got some mixed messages there. And she's also a fitness person. So she was talking about her running and influencing people to like love themselves, but also here's how many miles I ran today. The general healthy living blogger thing, right? I mean, I think outside of the like intersectional feminist circles, that that is kind of where quote-unquote body positivity has landed. It's like, you can love yourself and that's positive. But anyway, lovely person. However, several of her friends reached out to me and was like, she's in relapse. We were in treatment Mm. with her and she's definitely in relapse and we need someone to help. Can you talk to her? Because her parents won't, because she won't do anything about it because she's not listening to us. Maybe she'll listen to you. So I reached out. And so here's the thing. And this is the, the reason I use this example is because I think it's the extreme version of what a lot of us are going through, especially when we become an influencer of any kind online or believe that we've become an influencer. She said to me in, you know, paraphrasing here, I can't stop because I am creating positive change for other people. And if I stop, then they're not going to be able to change, right? They're not going to gain the benefits. They're not going to have anyone to tell them how to love themselves. Now, that was the first thing. So it's like she had influenced herself, right, to believe that what she was doing was positively affecting people, even though she was teaching people how to eat in a disordered way and not rest when you hurt yourself and continue exercising and live in addiction and pain, essentially. So yes, you post some body positive memes, but at the same time, you're not being a good role model, even though your persona is pretending to be, your online persona is pretending to be. The other part of that is like, look, I get it. If you are a big enough influencer that you're getting affiliate deals and sponsorships and people are having you come speak places or having you represent them as you run your umpteenth marathon, you're making money, right? 
if you stop doing the thing that you're doing that is hurting you, you stop making money. Right. Right. So what happens then? Well, you have to go out and get a a quote unquote real job or you have to figure out a different way to support yourself. And that is terrifying, especially if you are used to a certain lifestyle or you don't have you're not in a place where that is financially viable for you. Right. Because a lot of people do make money online, especially people who've been influencers for years and years and years before all of the Internet marketing boom happened. Right. So there's two kinds of capital influencing her decisions about her life. There's social capital. My followers will leave me. My followers won't love me. The people that I care about won't care about me. And then there's financial capital. I have affiliate deals. I have sponsorships. If my social capital goes away, then those are going to dry up. And when you put those two things together, it makes it very difficult for you to see beyond yourself and say, oh, crap, I have an eating disorder and an exercise addiction and I need to stop right? Why would you go to treatment if everybody tells you you look great, you're doing fine, and also here's my money? Why would you do that? Right. Right? Yeah. And that you're helping them by being open about what's going on for you, which even though, you know, it does hurt people. I think a lot of times people who are in, I mean, I think listeners to this podcast are generally pretty wise to triggers. Like I'm so... I'm so amazed all the time at the way that people in the Facebook group for this podcast like will lovingly call each other out and be like, hey, please remove the number here or can you take that link down? It's really triggering. But I think there is a way in which people who are really new to this movement and maybe some new listeners here don't recognize triggers as triggers. They just feel bad or they feel like they need to do something disordered when they see them. But it's a it's a trigger in the sense of like it's sort of a reflex. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is that if you go and read this person's blog, you may not even realize that they're in a state of constantly being triggered. So not just to call out one other person, I will totally put myself on the line and say, when I started my blog in what, 2012 at this point, I was I was recovered enough. I was not in a good place. I was exercising through injury. Absolutely. I was actually telling my fiance about this the other day when I had my ankle surgery for the tendon tear that I gave myself through chronic overexercise, I had my surgery and I still went to the gym. Like a week later, I was back on the bike. Now, I wasn't biking on that leg, but I was still back on the bike because I was terrified of not exercising. Hmm. Okay, I started a blog about going through recovery and about body positivity, or at least that's kind of where it went. And I was not in a good place. I totally wanted to be the next paleo big wig. That was my my whole goal. That's how I actually got into the internet marketing world is I had listened to so many podcasts from people who had like written their cookbook or started their blog and just started living their quote unquote best life because now they were both thin and rich. I'm sorry, lean. lean. Right. Please right. pardon me. Paleo world. Yeah. Got to use the lingo for the paleo world, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But th- I believed it. I believed it wholeheartedly. And I believed that I could have that, which is why even Years later, when the evidence was very clear that I was just hurting myself, I kept saying, oh, but I'm paleo. Oh, but I can't stop. And so what happened is actually, if you go and listen to my old podcast, Finding Our Hunger, you can hear when things changed. I'm pretty sure it was like around like episode 95 or so. I can't remember the exact number, but it's in the 90s. And I interviewed the author of The Gluten Lie, Alan Levinovitz, who is also going to be on my new podcast. And he's just one of my favorites. He's amazing. 
He was on this show too, and he's it's one of the fan favorites for sure. It's a great oh, yeah. episode. It was so that one represents a turning point for me because so I stopped being paleo long before I started writing about it because I was scared to lose my audience that I had built. Right. How can I tell them that I'm not paleo when I have literally spent three years telling them that I'm paleo, that being paleo is how you recover from your eating disorders, that being paleo is the healthiest way to live, that being paleo will make you live forever, that, you know, biohacking your MTHFR is going to change your life when all it really did was give me acne so bad that I will have scars forever. Like, how can I lose my social capital and the thing that I'm building towards financial capital? So I was really terrified to release that interview because I just started eating gluten again after, you know, reading his stuff and allowing myself to question the things that I believed and realizing that I was perfectly fine when I did. Mm -hmm. Which is so important as a, a step in recovery, right? But then when it's tied to your public persona and when you feel yes. like you have so much to lose, it's like not only are you losing the whatever those rules were giving you, right? Whatever drew you to paleo in the first place, whatever sort of coping mechanism that was for you in your life and your eating disorder. But then also this perceived almost like public shaming or fall from grace when you feel like people in your audience are going to, you know, run for the hills. Yeah. And I mean, exa that's exactly it. It's, if you look at, so Jordan Younger is still appears to be doing quite well for herself, but she was, uh, what was she, the, the balanced vegan or the blonde vegan? The blonde vegan first. Yeah. Yeah. She was the blonde vegan. And when she said, I'm not a vegan anymore, she got death threats. Yeah. Now that's the extreme version. Vegans, no offense if anybody's a vegan. I have been a vegan, so I can say this. Vegans are batshit about being vegan. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah, there's a real movement. I mean, not every vegan, of course, but no, like course. there's yeah, there's that radical element that's just like, yeah, but I was batshit about it. Like I was 100 percent like I was completely, completely indoctrinated the same way that I was with paleo and I was willing to go fight to the death for it. Yeah, it was serving like a religion, it sounds like, that like yeah. point of Alan Levinovitz, right? That these sorts of dietary models turn into this religious set of values that like govern people's lives. That is exactly it. Now, here's the thing. So I'm not a religious person. I was not raised religious. I have cultural things that I'll sometimes do to honor my my family, right? But like, I'm not a religious person. However, in, and I think in America, obviously, there is a very specifically religious part of our, our country, but our religion here, let's be honest, is money, mm. right? And so when your dogma is tied up in cash, right? Because if, you, I mean, you look at it, you look at a lot of, there's a, there's a ton of like internet marketing people who are also very religious. There's the idea that the good, the worthy get paid, yeah, the prosperity gospel, right? That's the thing. Exactly. So here we have this intersection of religion, money, and nutrition, or fitness, whatever. And that becomes the basis of your brand. None of us realize that when we're going to... Nobody says, I'm going to be, you know, a zealot today about my nutrition. I'm not... <laughs> nobody says, you know, like, I'm going to harbor some beliefs that might potentially damage me down the line. Like nobody thinks about it. And it just, it makes me so sad because I'm on the other side of it now, but I've been there. 
it's like when you leave a cult and you can finally like see what the cult was doing to you, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Totally. And that's kind of where I'm at, which is why I started this podcast. I am a marketer by trade. That's my day job. I do business to business. So it's a little bit less. I, I'm mostly just like telling high level executives to buy a uh, software as a service product as opposed to telling you know, business to consumer telling you, dear listener, to buy my thing. Which is a lot, I feel like business to business marketing is a lot more sort of straightforward, right? And Mm -hmm. there's less underhanded influence there. For the most part. Um, But I will say, so one of the things that made me kind of hate marketing, even though that is what I do for my (laughs) living, I remember sitting at my desk job and we were working on a project and one of the one of my coworkers I was like oh, the numbers just aren't working we don't have any good numbers because everyone likes to see numbers right like when you see like oh x percent of people benefited or x percent of people benefited by x percent or making x right exactly adding x to their bottom line or whatever yeah. it was and she, and she just said well when in doubt fudge the numbers and i was oh. like Ah, no, no, don't do that. But that is, there's a project at my current job right now where we're working on some uh, a FUD email. So I don't know if you're familiar with this, but FUD stands for fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. So FUD is the basis of marketing, unfortunately. You know, you can go the desire route, like you're going to get these riches, you're going to lose this much weight, you're going to prosper, you're going to, wouldn't you want this? Don't you want this? But the the real thing that drives marketing is fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And it makes me so squeamish. This is one of the reasons why I gave up health coaching, because none of my emails were working. I couldn't get people to sign up for my program because I can't market. I just can't do it. I mean, yeah. You know, it's like, it's crazy because I'm a good marketer. Like if you look at the amount of stuff that I've done, I've done at my other jobs. Great. But when it comes to like marketing myself, I'm like, I don't want to sell to you. I don't. Yeah. You don't want to apply those same tactics to your audience. Exactly. And it's a lot harder to make a living when you don't, <laughs> you know, especially if you don't have a big audience. Like there are people who got started early who really know how to how to speak to their audience in a way that doesn't use fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And so it's just like they're familiar with you. They know what you what you've got to sell and they're willing to buy it because you have helped them in the past. And that's the kind of marketing that I love because it's like it's just a real relationship, not a quote unquote authentic relationship. Oh yeah. Yeah. Everything's so authentic, which we can talk about, but I know. I'm so curious your thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah, uh, got got a lot of them. But just to just to finish up, so fear, uncertainty, and doubt. If you go and like look at the emails that you get from people who have a program that's closing soon, many, not all, will prey on your fear of missing out, your uncertainty about the future, and your doubt in yourself. Right? They'll be like, "Hey, I got an email." So I'm on a lot of email lists just so that I can see what marketers are doing. And I got an email from a WordPress plugin provider. Okay, a plugin on WordPress just helps me add things to my website, just in case you're unfamiliar. And this particular plugin helps me see where people are clicking on my website and how many people came to my website that day. And I got this email from them that was absolutely absurd. I'm going to see if I can actually find the screenshot of it because I, I just want to read it to you. Yeah, totally. I have a, a featured album on my Facebook, on my personal Facebook, and it's just like all of the ridiculous marketing pitches that I've gotten. 
it's one of my favorite albums. It's just screenshots. It's not like, you know, anything sexy. Okay. This is the subject line that they sent me. 72 hours left. Can you live with regret? Oh, no. Yeah. And then the subheadline is, it'll be months in capital before we do this again, parentheses, seriously. So again, 72 hours left. Can you live with regret? It'll be months before we do this again, seriously. Ugh. So this is a WordPress plugin <laughs> provider, okay? It's 72 hours left to upgrade to their pro program, which I already did because I needed the analytics. But it was just like, can you live with regret? Ugh. Do you feel do you feel the fear that that just that phrase instills, even if you don't even know what it is that you might be regretting? Totally. These people and, you know, they send me emails daily on how to influence people here. This is the most recent email from them. The eight persuasive words that instantly help you sell more. And it's like the words are new, free, you <laughs> like, it was just like, oh, my God, like, why? Why are we doing this? Urgency sells. They're talking about words that make you daydream using words like imagine prestige. So showing your, your social capital, right? All of this stuff is just like, it makes me sick to my stomach because we're all leaning in to these very easy triggers, right? Like you think a trigger, you think, oh, you know, I just read a thing on Facebook that made me want to go back to my behaviors. It's the same thing in marketing. Yeah, I read this email that made me want to buy. Yeah, we are all constantly being triggered and you can't put a trigger warning on internet marketing because then the entire internet will just be a giant trigger warning. <laughs> and, uh. and I don't think people know to do that. Like you and I and your your listeners are so smart and we will put the the trigger warning content notes, you know, say, hey, look, I'm going to talk about how I feel about X right here. or I'm going to post this article about Fitbits, maybe don't read it, but then we'll go and subscribe to an email list and get triggered and triggered and triggered and we don't even realize it. Yeah. Well, let's talk about how that plays out in this space of people, because I have a lot of listeners also who are dietitians and therapists and health at every size professionals, you know, or people who are wanting to take their business in that direction. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about like how to build a business more ethically and especially around the concept of body acceptance and health at every size, because it's like, it's already a huge step, I think, for people to decide I'm not going to sell weight loss anymore. I'm not going to sell diets. I'm going to move away from that, even though that might have been lucrative in the past. And I'm going to just focus on doing intuitive eating and health at every size in my work as a health professional. Mm -hmm. But how do we keep from still using some of the tactics and rhetoric of the weight loss people and of these internet marketers that are so problematic? And what, what do we do instead? Oh, so this is where I'm kind of struggling or building or asking questions. Mm -hmm. Because so here's the thing. If you want to make money real fast, the way you do it is to do, use triggers or you look around at the body positive internet, right? Who, where they're not using the weight loss language anymore. We have our own language now. It's take a picture on Instagram of your cellulite or your fat roll or you in a crop top and talk about how hard it was for you to take that picture, right? That's, that's the, our other language. I want us all to move away from that. What sucks is in order to make money online, you have to perform a certain amount, your authenticity. You have to perform what it is you're selling. Part of why my podcast is called Your Body, Your Brand is because 
when you show up online with something to sell, whether that thing is an ideology or a product or service, you have to build a brand. You have to. If you want to sell, you have to build a brand. You have to be clear in your communications about who you are, what you stand for, and how you are going to position yourself to the world. You know, if I go to your website, I know who you are, right? I know what you stand for. I know that, you know, you have, you work with women, right? People who identify as female or femme, right? I can tell that from the way that your website is built, even just the fonts, right? right? Because of triggers in my own brain knowing that I know I've seen online. So I, I, I get a sense of who you are. When you're online, you're not necessarily talking about your dog. You're sharing articles about recovery, about food, about you know the articles that you've written in places that gain exposure and also add to prestige in a little bit, which is there's nothing wrong with any of this. Like this is what you have to do right. in order to build a brand. I think that there's kind of two parts to this or maybe three. So part one is when you go into building a brand, do it with consciousness about marketing. You personally, I know, know <laughs> this stuff. Yeah. So you, when you made decisions about your website and we've had conversations about this, which will actually be on my podcast, right? Yes. So excited. When you made your website, you did it with intention. You asked, what do I need to do to reach my specific audience? Because you do have to know who your audience is. You have to know how to serve them. And in order to serve them, you may have to place triggers in place or breadcrumbs, maybe is a better word, so that they know what you're about and that you're the right person for them. Right. Using language that resonates with the people you want to work with, the people you want to bring in the door. Exactly. Language, imagery, etc. So you're doing it with intention. So you're not just doing it because you feel like this is what other people are doing, so it works. Right. Right? Yeah, I didn't go through a business program that that taught me that, which I, I, that's a whole other thing, is that there's some major online business programs that people can do where they sort of come out almost in this rubber stamp sort of fashion, yep. like following these rules. And right. I feel like I was very lucky not to fall into that. And then before I even knew about all the sort of dark side of internet marketing, I was like, oh, well, I don't have the money to spend on this right now. I'm just going to figure it out myself because I'm kind of a DIYer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, now I'm like, whew, dodged a bullet there, you know? Yeah, which is great. I think it's important because a lot of people get pulled into these or they, go, they get in through a multi-level marketing program oh. like Beachbody where it's a done-for-you marketing system in a lot of ways. Like, I can tell you, because a lot of Beachbody people actually don't post that they uh, work for Beachbody, but I can I can look at any Instagram and instantly tell you if they're Beachbody or not. Interesting. Yeah, because of the way that they will market it to you. You capitalize random words that will trigger people. There's a specific thing that you do for the number of posts you do before you post an inspirational quote, how often they post their same before and after picture, the way that they write about their daily life and thread in their exercise. It's, it's cookie cutter. But so, okay, so the, that, there's that first bit, right? Then the next thing that I, I think people really need to learn how to do after you get outside of the cookie cutter, like here's how you trigger people to buy your thing, is to understand that even though you have a brand, you are not a brand. You are a person. 
as soon as you tie yourself to your brand, oh, I'm the gluten-free girl, I'm the intuitive eating get, you know, chick or whatever language it is that you've used now to brand yourself, as I did with in my skinny jeans, right? I was Miss Skinny Jeans. That's how I signed everything. That was everything to me. Because when you become the brand, anything that you do that's off-brand, you have to do in secret or you have to do off like away from the internet or you stop doing in general, right? And then what happens when your brand changes? What happens when, oh, you injure yourself and you're not the marathon girl anymore? Right. What do you do? Do you keep running marathons or do you change? You have to be yourself first and you have to be really clear on what you is. (laughs) That was not grammatically correct, but it it was. Like you have to be really clear on what the, the core essence of you is there there we go now we got the grammar <laughs> and so when i was coaching recovery i didn't coach recovery right because that's technically legally that needs to be done with a therapist anyway i coached discovery okay this is the process of letting go of behaviors and ideologies beliefs about your core self right that's the recovery process right where you're like i believe that i am not a certain size i believe i'm not good enough because xyz i believe I have to eat a certain way. I believe I have to exercise a certain way. You let go of all that stuff and you figure out what is the core essence of you. Everyone's discovery looks different. Everyone's core essence is different. You might become a competitive extreme kite flyer. I don't know. (laughs) That might be a thing. You might learn how to crochet. You might raise show dogs. I don't know. For me, it was, I found pole and burlesque. So I do pole dance, I do burlesque, and now I do drag. It's performing. It's a fun thing to do. I do theater. I teach theater now. I've found something that's away from food and nutrition, away from this thing that I was trying to sell. It's the core essence of who I am is performing and theater and all of that fun stuff. And it might be something different for you. But now I've got lots of things on my Facebook and my Instagram like, oh my gosh, what happens if I go off brand? Well, I'm so off brand at this point, I don't even have a brand. But You have to be able to be secure in yourself so that if you do break your leg or find out that you're gluten intolerant or, you know, whatever it is, and you have to pivot, you have to stop selling the thing you're selling. You can do that because it's just a brand that you had, not your core self. Yeah, that's so important to think about, like not becoming your brand, not identifying so strongly with your brand that it's going to crush you if Mm -hmm. things change because things will change. Like that's the essence of life. That's, you know, I talk about that a lot with bodies, right? That our bodies are always changing that just because you're temporarily able-bodied or temporarily young or temporarily blonde or whatever it is, right? Your, Your body is going to change over time. And that is the nature of life and that's something actually to be valued and celebrated you know that like if we're not changing we're probably dead yeah exactly and that yeah it's it's not just physical things it's it's everything about us and then the last bit is i struggle with the idea of authenticity i struggle with this idea that like you have to authentically be sharing your vulnerabilities all the time I think it's really easy to fall into once you leave the disordered eating world and go directly into body positivity because it becomes a new disorder for you. Talking constantly about your body, talking constantly about how you came to accept your body, talking constantly about the flaws you believed you had. Yes, it will get you an audience of people who are like early stage in their own body positive discovery. But what happens is it traps you in your trauma. So 
this is one of the most damaging things that I see happening in the body positive world is that in order to sell to people who are who might need you, you do have to either know how to get out of your trauma and just tell your story without having to tell it all the time. Right. Like, Chrissy, your your stuff is not about your trauma. Yeah. <laughs> Anymore. You know, when I first started this podcast, there was a little bit of that because I was like recovered from the behaviors and mostly recovered from the thoughts. But I was still struggling to find context. Like, why did this happen to me? What are other people's relationships with food like? You know, so there was a sort of personal impetus. And, you know, some of the early episodes, I was really too vulnerable. Like I overshared and I'm like a little cringy about that now, (laughs) you know, because, but you know, hey, that was my process. That was what I needed to go through at the time. And Mm -hmm. thankfully, I, I felt empowered or capable of evolving away from that and not making my brand Like, I'm the vulnerable girl. I'm vulnerable all the time. And I share, you know, all these deep, dark secrets about myself constantly. Like, now I feel like I'm really past that. And I do talk about what I've gone through in certain contexts when I feel open to it and when I feel strong enough to handle it. But, like, I'm not constantly sharing about myself. And I do see that a lot online, too, that people, like, make a brand out of vulnerability. Yep. And really just like, I think it it does such a huge disservice not to have some boundaries around your, like what you're willing to share with strangers. These are literal strangers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's, it is a fast way to get followers because uh, it's so funny. If you look at the analytics on my website, the most read blog posts are the ones about my struggles with acne. Because people are, look, everyone wants answers. Everybody wants to feel like they have a place in the world. And the internet has been wonderful for that. We've given each other the ability to see that we're not alone. However, if you make your brand, if you build it on the back of your trauma, you will always have to be performing that trauma in some way for you to feel like people are finding the validation they need. And it is so damaging because that you will never fully recover if you do that. If you do not stop focusing on your body at some point, you will always be focusing on your body. And it is possible to stop focusing on your body. That's what true body acceptance is. It's not about being able to like see past your cellulite. It's about not even thinking about it because it's just not relevant to you anymore. Right. Yeah. It's about having your body be a vehicle to get you around in life, but you have so much more going on in your life that your body's just taking you to those things. Exactly. Like for me, when I started performing, I know for a lot of people, performing is actually very triggering because they have, they feel like they have to present a certain way, but I am so busy thinking about choreography and teaching and costumes and getting to the venue on time. I don't even have time to think about what my belly looks like. It's not even a, and then I'm not, I look at pictures and I'm like, oh man, I didn't point my toes. Like that's, (laughs) that's as far as I go in terms of focusing on my body now, because I don't spend all day talking about my body to other people online. I never have a conversation about it. In fact, my partner and I don't talk about my body. I don't talk about my body with other people. I don't use Facebook to talk about bad body days or what I'm done. I don't read articles about body positivity anymore because I don't want to talk about bodies anymore. It's not relevant. It doesn't help me. I've moved past it. And that actually keeps me so far away from triggers that when triggers show up online, I'm like, oh, that's stupid. I don't have time for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So it was there for you when you when you needed it at a certain point in your journey, but then you were able to let it go. Yeah. 
And a lot of people don't because they make their brand about it. Right. And you have to be willing to get uninvested. You have to be willing to like, maybe don't write a blog about it because maybe you'll get followers. And maybe once you get those followers, you're not going to want to stop. Maybe don't try to make money doing the same thing that 800,000 other people are doing, which is posting pictures of yourself in a bikini talking about why it's hard to wear a bikini. Like (laughs) maybe don't do that. Because if you want to be able to wear a bikini and not think about it, maybe don't post about it. I don't know. It's really hard because it's, you know, I don't want to tell people don't try to make money online because you can if you want to. I just want people to be aware that when you do, you have to be so intentional about how you do it. And you have to be so far along in your recovery you know, there's a couple of people like Christy Yu and Summer Inanin, Sarah Vance, who like I know, and Melissa Toller, like people who I'm I'm close with and I followed their journeys and I know that they started in the same way that I did, which was I'm not quite there yet, but I think I'm okay to start. And we're very fortunate that we have found a world where we don't have to make our bodies our brand anymore, but it it could have gone real bad for each of us. Totally. And we're just very lucky that we gained that awareness through whatever it was. But I don't see that happening for everyone. And so I want to raise awareness around it. Yeah, that's so important. I think one of the things, you know, just thinking about that, like what was, what prevented us from going that direction? I think for me and maybe for some of these other folks you mentioned too, it was like the social justice aspects of this, right? And that's something that mainstream body positivity is really missing and that we've talked a lot about on this podcast about how we need to evolve away from the mainstream body positivity and get to the deeper issues of like fat phobia in our society and what weight stigma does to people's mental and physical health and understanding that size acceptance is a social justice issue, just like racial equality and gender equality and all of it, right? That it it has to be part of the conversation. And by the way, also that racial equality, gender equality, sexual orientation, all of it has to be a part of the conversation about bodies too, because body acceptance and positivity is not just for, you know, thin, young, white women, right? It's for, it's for everybody. It has to be for everybody if it's going to mean anything. Yeah, that's exactly, exactly it. And, you know, it's like, for me, moving past the like needing to post pictures of my belly rolls era of my of my own recovery really it came down to like the world is in need of people who are awake and ready to fight for actual justice not just the justice to not diet (laughs) Right? (laughs) right and part of justice i think comes with understanding marketing because the world that we live in I mean, like this, this might take us down a rabbit hole. I don't know if we have time for, but (laughs) all of marketing and public relations and the newspaper industry and advertising, it all starts with propaganda. And it's so easy to control a population that believes in the propaganda. Let's just put it that way. You may not think that the things that you post are propaganda and they may not be, but a lot of the world that you live in is shaped by propaganda And so the things that you may believe because you just feel like you feel strongly about them may be things you believe or care about because it's something that somebody has taught you how to believe in. I don't know if that makes sense and sounds like I'm wearing a tinfoil hat. 
No, no. I think it's I think culture is that writ large, right? But propaganda is sort of a tool of inculcating certain values that a particular culture might want you to have, right? So like the propaganda about weight loss that we're always sold that weight loss is going to lead to happiness, success, love, acceptance, like all the things that are constantly associated with it. But also propaganda about like who to vote for and mm. what's acceptable behavior in the political sphere, you know, like I took a lot of heat. Well, not a lot. Actually, most of my listeners were really on board with it. But I did talk about the election around mm -hmm. the time, you know, both making an endorsement and then after afterwards expressing how disappointed and sad and heartbroken I was with the results. And, you know, some people were like, I listen to this podcast to hear about food and body acceptance, like don't bring politics into it. And that's the other thing is that like, Politics are part of it, right? Social justice, the social justice idea that all bodies have a place, all bodies deserve respect and value. That was literally an issue in the election. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, that was literally something that each person had a stance on, right? We saw Trump have a very body negative stance and speak very disparagingly about women's bodies numerous times mm -hmm. and, you know, throughout the election and throughout his history, right? There's countless examples of him fat shaming people, of him judging women based on their appearance versus Hillary Clinton, who did not do that and expressed support for all bodies, right? So, like, it was impossible not to talk about it. And I think there's this larger issue of what does it say about us as a culture? And what does it say about our propaganda that yeah. we elevated someone like that to the highest office in the land that says on a broader scale, our culture doesn't care about social justice, right? It wasn't just bodies that, that were an issue in the election. It wasn't just body image. It was race and gender and sexual orientation, mm -hmm. trans rights, you know, all of this stuff has been, has come into question and has been, you know, people have been harmed by this administration. Yeah. I will say too, so for anyone who is like, hmm, I don't know about this propaganda thing. I don't believe in it. You know, you sound like a conspiracy theorist, essentially. I would actually ask you to read the, anything really by Edward Bernays, B-E-R-N-A-Y-S. When I read this, his books, it blew my mind. He was one of our very first public relations, like official, like real public relations professionals. He codified that which is public relations. And I highly recommend that you read his books. And then if you can get propaganda and crystallizing public opinion, those are the two that at least the two that I read first. The forewords by Mark Crispin Miller and Stuart Ewan were so incredible to read for me. Because even though his Bernays books are written unironically, you know, they're written about why it's important for public relations to be propaganda, essentially. Ooh. Yeah. Well, Yikes. but that's. Yeah, this was at a time like during it was during World War One. This is a time when we needed propaganda in order to get people to support the military, whatever. But he actually went on to solidify the basis of advertising, marketing and public relations. So read those two books, then go and read books by Stuart. Uh, that's with a U, not an EW. Stuart Ewan, E-W-E-N. Read PR, exclamation point, or Captains of Consciousness or All-Consuming Images, it will blow your mind. It'll absolutely blow your mind because there is an entire, like if you want to talk social justice, 
you have to talk about PR. You have to talk about advertising and marketing. And then, and I'm looking up the title of this book right now. Then there's a book that's actually written by, uh, I feel bad about telling you to buy this book because this guy is an asshole and I don't want to support him. Hmm. Like, I don't want to like financially, like give him any more validation. So maybe like get it from the library or. <laughs> yeah. Ryan Holiday. It's called Trust Me, I'm Lying. Okay. Confessions of a Media Manipulator. So read Bernays books, then read Stuart Ewan's books, then read Ryan Holiday's book and just tell me that it doesn't squick you out a little bit how Ryan Holiday came to be because of Edward Bernays, that Ryan Holiday, who manipulated the media to, to write about his clients, who if you go and read Gawker, which doesn't exist anymore, but go read Jezebel, any of the blog posts that you read on a, you know, a regular basis on your favorite feminists or outrage websites, like <laughs> any, just trust me, go read these books. It's really like, this will take us like an extra hour to talk about. <laughs> so go, go read the books, come back, shoot me an email, tell me what you learned. I feel like that's a good, a good place to start because you do need to understand the basis of how you might be manipulated so that when those triggers show up, the same way that, you know, when you listen to Christie's podcast or anybody else's podcast, right? You understand how you might be triggered for your eating disorder or disordered eating behaviors. Understand how you might be triggered about your brand, about the things you believe in, about why you just shared that blog post online, even though it might be potentially inflammatory. Why did you click on that headline? Why did you sign up for that email list? Understand why you might be triggered so that when you are triggered, you can make a conscious decision. I don't want people to stop spending money, period. As much as I would love to dismantle capitalism, I don't want to destroy business. Because as we'll talk about on my podcast, capitalism is gaining capital on the backs of other people. So being a CEO and not doing any work, but you're underpaying your workers in China who are building the product that's making you millions of dollars, that kind of thing, that's capitalism. Whereas business is like, Christy, what you're doing, you have a business, you're selling a thing that you believe in, you're not manipulating your people. And, you know, as a result, you get mutual value, <laughs> right? I don't want to dismantle business. Keep doing what you're doing. I, but I do want to dismantle capitalism. Yeah, I like that distinction. I think that's very <laughs> important because, yeah, we need roofs over our heads and to put food on the table and stuff like that. So anyone who has a business who's trying to do those things, like, good for you, you know, do it, do it ethically and do it in a way that feels authentic, not in a performative way, but like true to who you are, right? And yes. then and live your values in your business. And that's awesome. But yeah, this whole thing of CEOs and outsourcing and yeah, all of that <laughs> is is a whole other animal. It's a whole other story. And just just so you know, so I, I don't want to take credit for that wonderful insight that came from Eleanor Pradota. And we will talk about that on my podcast in way more depth because they are incredible and have been doing actual social justice and justice around capitalism for quite some time. But the point is, yeah, go read the books, understand the basis of why you make these decisions, and then decide for yourself and don't be triggered. That's all. It's the same thing with all the eating disorder recovery stuff. You can read those articles if you really wanted to, but you know better, so you choose not to. That's it. It's about making conscious choices as opposed to being triggered. If you can get past the triggers for your disordered eating, you can get past the triggers for marketing as well. 
I love that. That's such a positive message. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah. Tell us where people can learn more about your podcast and, and you know, when it's going to be out and how they can get more information and all of that stuff. Sure. So my goal is to get this out before the end of the year. I'm doing a couple more interviews still on brand and religiosity and eating, but I already have over 25 hours of audio that I need to edit. So uh, I'm real excited about it. But yeah, so the podcast, as of right now, I'm shopping it around for different podcast networks to see if we can get it in there. But if not, I will be publishing it myself. So the best way for people to find out about it is to get on my mailing list because I'll just email you when it comes out. And that way I don't have to worry about like maybe you won't see it if it's on Facebook or you won't remember to visit my website. So email list. It's performingwoman.com slash email. Just sign up there or you can just go to performingwoman.com and there's an email list sign up as well. Awesome. You can also just, you know, bookmark performingwoman.com. That's my website if you want to see all my crazy burlesque stuff or read my unpopular opinions about marketing and body image. It's all there. And then if you really want Facebook cuz Facebook is a thing, I do have a Facebook group that is called Your Body Your Brand, so just search for that and you can just join that cuz that's also a good way If you get engaged and want to join, because unfortunately, Facebook, if you don't remember to click on it after so long, it'll just stop showing up in your newsfeed unless you specifically say you want to follow the group. So email list first, website second, then Facebook, and we'll I'll be posting stuff there as well. Awesome. I'll put links to all those in the show notes, too, so people can find that. And I'll give a link to the show notes at the end of this episode. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kyla. This is awesome as always. And just a pleasure to hear what you're up to. And this new venture is so, so important. Thank you. So that's a wrap for this episode. It was so great talking with Kyla. And I hope you'll all check out her new podcast as soon as it drops. Speaking of podcasts, if you found this podcast helpful, please help us reach more people who need to hear the anti-diet message by sharing this episode on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. It could be Android or Stitcher or whatever you listen to podcasts on. But sharing on one of the Apple platforms helps bring us higher in the iTunes podcast rankings, and that helps more people discover us so that we can continue to drown out those diet culture messages and keep rising up even further in the health category. So help us out by sharing with your friends and family. And even, you know, you can show them how to subscribe if they're technologically challenged. And while you're at it, I'd love it if you'd leave us a nice rating and review, which is another way to help new listeners discover us and also just helps brighten my day. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, head over to christyharrison.com slash 126. That's christyharrison.com slash 126. This episode was brought to you by M.M. LaFleur. M.M. LaFleur takes the work out of dressing for work by offering luxurious, pragmatic clothing and personal styling. All you have to do is take a quick online survey, and an M.M. stylist will work one-on-one with you to build your work wardrobe and send you a bento box of four to six wardrobe staples and accessories. Once your bento box arrives, you'll have four days to try everything on. Keep what you like and send the rest back. It's completely free to try, and because they're not a subscription service, there's no commitment, so you got nothing to lose. Try a bento yourself by visiting mmbento.com. That's M-M-B-E-N-T-O.com. Thanks so much to Kyla Prince for joining us on this episode and sharing all her wisdom. And thanks to you for listening. Food Psych is edited and engineered by the amazing folks at Podcast Fast Track. And our administrative and community manager is Ashley Soroya. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. 
And the music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL. And the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who put you there in that perfect position now? Booties want your food, and you ain't really Hey there, before you go, just a quick little secret track on this episode of the podcast. Kyla sent me a trailer for her podcast after we recorded the episode, and I wanted to share it with you here so you can all get psyched about her new podcast, Your Body, Your Brand. Check it out. So I'm going to be real radical here, and I'm going to say all women are brands. Whether or not we're trying to sell a service or a product, all women are brands. And what I mean by that is women are trained to present themselves as consumable objects. For, uh, you know, at least white, middle class, somewhat educated women, uh, the feminist movement had really achieved so many of its goals. And so there came in aftermath kind of this much more consumerist focus on well, now that you're liberated, what are you going to do with that? You know, so we had like the Jane Fonda workout where, you know, this former anti-war feminist leaning activist was like, you know, feel the burn because your body is the next frontier of liberation. How, how could you ever admit to yourself that this has become an issue when, you know, it's a scary thing to do for, for the regular person who has a, a job that doesn't depend on fitness but when your whole identity and your whole livelihood depends on when your, you know, your your mortgage and your kids, you know, your kids' education and everything depends on that, that's a scary place. So, yeah, a lot of people go into this thinking that they're going to make money off of this. But I'd say, you know, be very careful because your body becomes proof. We just have this natural tendency to kind of see a person and then automatically think, oh, wow, they must be super successful. Their lives must be perfect. And it must be so easy. Like you just get the training, then people are going to come knocking on your door to work with you. Then you're going to make lots of money and your life is going to be perfect. It's the same kind of magical thinking that diet culture instills in us. No one ever talks about the intersection of disordered eating and money, but I think it's time that we have this conversation. In our increasingly branded and visual online world, it's time to talk about how capital affects the ways in which we hold on to beliefs about our body image, about fitness, and about nutrition. And this is the podcast that's going to do it. Welcome to Your Body, Your Brand. Like, if I'm making money off of this, I'm definitely going to get healthy. I'm definitely going to lose weight. My obsession with being perfect and trying to solve everybody's problems and everything always being picture perfect and whatever... That killed my relationship with my husband. When you hand over the keys to your body and your life to someone else to tell you what to eat and what to do and how to spend your time trying to shrink yourself, you lose your power. This is obviously some kind of scam here. Why are why are people falling for it? But I guess they're they're maybe they're not buying a diet book. They're buying the feeling of hope in that moment. There is nothing more damaging than scrolling through endless Instagram feeds of people who look the way they do because of who they are and hoping that you can become like them, even when you can't. That's somehow that that fake, the fantasy that people are using to sell whatever it is that they're selling you, that that is something that makes you happy because it doesn't.